Welcome to the Tree of Prima podcast, a podcast about the Western esoteric tradition and Freemasonry in general. We're here with both Ike Baker and Sky Mathis. Uh, this is the the Tree of Philosophic Arcanum group. Um, we've been looking forward to this for like many many months now. This has been planned out. We've been quiet about it, but we're all in the same room together. This because this is how we like to do it. Um, so welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming to Phoenix, Ike. Yeah, it's. Um, this is the first time that we've all been in a room together. So I think this is a pretty special moment. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for putting me up. Thank you for having me speak yeah. at the lodge last night. That was incredible. We had a and good Scott, time. Thank you for coming to North Carolina last week. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was glorious. And I wish I could live there. So we got... Um, we got Pat shooting some film in the back, but he might jump in here or there, but we figured four mics is enough for this one. We got Jamie, what do you have to say? Um, yeah, very excited for this conversation. I think we're talking about uh, Daimonis, and uh, is that right? Yeah. Or, uh, the Demiurge. I know Pat had a request uh, because Ike, in his presentation last night at our Blue Lodge, Ascension number 89 in Phoenix uh, brought up the Demiurge and then Pat Pat and Ike were talking afterward and I believe that was one of the, we, did, we didn't plan a subject. No. We just started recording. Pat said, what the hell is the Demiurge? Right. And, and everyone said, else. weren't you awake during my presentation? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Sky, take it away. What the hell is it? No, I'm just kidding, but... So where do we start with this sort of thing? So like Jamie said, um, you gave this great presentation on the Platonic tradition as it relates to Freemasonry. I had heard you mention eudaimonia, and of course a daimon is baked into that mm. word. Mm. So that might be a great uh, sort of jumping off place because we were talking, I guess, generally about like, well-being or, or mm -hmm. goodness. Um, but how might that relate? Why is daimon like baked right into the center of the word uh, eudaimonia. Yeah. Well, I think it has something to do with the fact that the the path of arete, which leads to eudaimonia, right, um, excellence or virtue and well-being, uh, in the Platonic conception kind of <clears throat> points to this idea of um, coming into into the highest aspect of your being as, a, as, a, as an individual human. It's, it's at least in the, in the earlier Platonic uh, tradition, you know, that's, that was the path to, I guess, the, the, uh, the perfection of an individuality as a human. But we kind of see from, from Plato's uh, letters, um, particularly the ones that are, I guess, academically deemed to be authentic, that he does... Um, Later on, he kind of, he doubts that whole thing that he initially posited. He, at, at a certain point later down the road, he's like, it's, it's not possible here in the material the same way it is, you know, and on the other side. In the, course, in the, in the ethereal, ideal, yeah, the in, in the ideal. Idea. So, so at first he starts out this really kind of, um, I don't want to say naive, but optimistic idea that if you follow the path of virtue, you will become you know, subsumed or 
you, you will embody the perfection your, uh, uh, that is like your ideal, right? Mm-hmm. If we're talking about platonic ideals, the ideal of Jake will be fully realized. But then later on, he's like, he, he comes to really express some doubt that that's actually fully possible here. Well, I know that Aristotle brings up eudaimonia again. Um, in fact, I can't think of it exactly where in Plato, but I know that's a big deal for Aristotle. So uh, I'm, what do you think? He just picked that up from Plato and then developed it further because he had a, that was like central to his, uh, you know, happiness and personal fulfillment, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, he, he would have had to um, just being his, his student and, and that being a major part of the Platonic dialogues. But, you know, um, the interesting thing about Aristotle is that he was kind of a, a, a prodigy uh, within the Platonic tradition, but he does his, he, he kind of does his own interpretations of things. I, I'm not as well-versed with the Aristotelian stuff. You know, I don't, I, 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 I've not gotten, gotten as granular with that as I have with it. Because, I mean, to even get granular with the Platonic stuff is probably going to take, like, the rest of my life. Sure. But, um... Uh, the Aristotelian stuff from the way that you're, you're kind of uh, describing the way it fits into his whole ethos is, is very much in line, right? Like that quote from, uh, that, uh, that I gave last night that, that Plato wrote, goodness has a salvific effect upon the right. human soul. So that's basically, you know, the, the eudaimonia was, was basically um, the, the anamnesis, the remembering. And it's interesting because the root of the word diamond has to do with like, um, like this, uh, dipartite nature, mm-hmm. like, like almost like, uh, two dis- distinct part, right? Like, like, uh, I want to say, I would say like cutting in half is the, mm-hmm. is the root of that. There's a lot, lots of different ways you could interpret it, but the word itself seems to imply, um, Dual I guess the way it's, it's used, yeah, kind of, which is interesting because even the diamonds have a dual nature. There's the agatho diamond and the kako diamond, um, but but I think later later in the Platonic tradition, Proclus kind of retrospectively looks back and answers the question somewhat definitively that you know the diamond is it can be or not can be, but is in fact both exterior and interior yeah. simultaneously. It's its own entity and that, that sort of thing. So is the daimon, if it is, at least in part, it, its own entity, is it something we can develop a relationship with? And is that sort of the point of approaching whatever eudaimonia is on a personal level? Because it seems to be a personal thing uh, or re- relating to this, the individual or the self. I mean, is there... Is this daimon uh, a contactable entity? Is it something that we create a relationship with? Is it well, I'll, intuition? I'll, I'll tell you what, what I think, and then I'd like to hear from you guys, you know. But like Proclus says, it's both interior and exterior at the same time. And you, you get that. It's sort of conflated with the, the holy guardian angel and the, um, the in, in the Golden Dawn tradition, Higher genius. The higher genius. And the perfect nature in the Pikachu. That's exactly right. And and the thing about it is actually we get the term higher genius because when Thomas Taylor translated the Neoplatonic stuff, he used the word genius to translate diamond. So that's a direct mm. correlation there. And um, there, I would say that there are two paths, right? There's one of like bhakti, devotion, 
And that's the exteriorization mm-hmm. of, of the, the genius or the diamond. And then there's more of, more of that interior sort of mystical contemplative path that recognizes the diamond to one degree or another to be a, an aspect of your spiritual architecture that is bornless, right? Yeah. It does not. It's it, eternal. It's, right. It's not, it's not your personality, but somehow it's a part of you. It's sharing in your. What do you think, Jamie? Well, if if we go to the Republic, right, isn't that kind of the first place where he, the first major exposition on the Daimon, I think, where he says that, uh, you know, you are allotted, or you choose a Daimon before coming into, uh, before coming into uh, manifestation or... Incarnation. Before incarnation. you're enmattered. So... Uh, you stand outside of the cosmos. So I think of it kind of astrologically, right? That's kind of my perspective. You st- the, the human soul, uh, pre-incarnate human soul, is outside of the fixed stars in the zodiac. Like how we hear it described in Macrobius, his uh, commentary on the dream of Scipio, mm-hmm. etc. And, uh, and, of course, in the Republic. So the soul is outside of the fixed stars in the zodiac, so therefore outside of causality. It is not subject to that type of causation. And then the soul chooses its daimon, and then that daimon is its mystagogue and psychopomp, who takes it down into, takes the, who accompanies the soul through those celestial gates down into the underworld. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's so at the at the the end of the myth of Ur, they kind of just shoot off like these um, like shooting stars. I think the way as he describes it, but uh, Porphyry, right? I think we were talking about this the other night on uh, on what is up to us, yeah. right? You, yeah, you you remember you reminded me of the title of that. Uh, he kind of develops the actual relationship on the way down that the diamond has, which is. Is pretty interesting, you know, and, and putting on the, the the soul putting on the astral garments as it descends through the se- heavenly spheres. Hmm. That's beautiful. Um, I would like to get maybe Ike to elaborate and then hear your guys' thoughts on this idea of uh, like the tetragrammaton versus the pentagrammatron and yod heh vav or Yahweh, associated with the Demiurge and the insertion of the Shin as the Christ principle. So you want me to talk about that? Yeah, <laughs> so we're moving into to Demiurge. Well, well it's interesting because int- they're related. Yeah, so that's what, what I was just going to ask. So this, um, well, you had mentioned, just to back up a second, Jamie, you had mentioned a, a mystagogue or a psychopomp for the listeners I think those are sort of key terms. Uh, just to quickly unpack that a little bit, um, what do we mean by that? Mystagogue is the expounder of mysteries, right? The expounder of, uh, of the, uh, the mysteries of that particular descent in this case. The, let's say the planetary mysteries as the soul is accompanied down through each of the spheres from Saturn to Jupiter, to Mars, to the Sun, etc., mm-hmm. down to the sublunary sphere. 
Um, and then the psychopomp, same thing, much like, you know, we consider Hermes or Anubis uh, as a psychopomp, uh, which is a guide of the soul. The, the, uh, you could probably break it down, psyche, soul, pompos maybe. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, psychopompos uh, is the guide of the soul, particularly into the underworld. So the underworld would be this uh, down through the planet, you know, into the the terrestrial. We're in the underworld. In the underworld. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that's now, interesting, actually, the the mystagogue idea, because when you go through a ritual, it's you know the, the, the higher. It's almost like like the diamond is the hierophant of the soul. It's initiating it into mm. incarnation, into materiality. That's an interesting concept. Yeah. So. Um, if the uh, daimon sort of shares in that, like, pinballing down the, the celestial spheres and it's related to each individual man, of course, the demiurge is related to archetypal man or the atom, right? Wasn't, weren't several of the quote-unquote Gnostic sects under the understanding that the, the demiurge was, in fact... Um, the one that created the first man and sort of shares in the quality of man in, ge in general. So there seems to be some sort of sympathy there that if our daimon is related to us as an individual, yeah. there's this demiurgic principle or entity that is related to man generally in some sort of interesting way. So I think that's sort of an interesting lead-in to your conversation about the demiurge because that's definitely the other thing that we had on our mind is there's this... Always. Yeah, yeah, right. This um, greater concept of a creator deity or creator being in general. A craftsman. A craftsman, right. a divine craftsman. Yeah, that's what that word means. That is related to man generally. So there's like this individual hierophant that's, that's, and this general sort of creator god. That's what what word means? The demiurge. Demiurgos means craftsman. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the the thing is, um, in several of the Gnostic cosmologies, the um, the demiurge employs uh, lesser uh, beings like angels and even daimons to construct man, and and it's really interesting because they when when man begins to speak on his own, like they freak out. And they try and kill him. It's it's pretty wild. Wait, well, yeah, didn't um didn't Adam. the demiurge create? What wasn't Adam uh like a dead matter at first, like an well, unspirited uh, yeah. or uh, Adam? I think means red earth. So we're just talking about like dirt, like yeah. materiality, clay, and then this this sort or of like spirit. Edom. Edom, yeah, I think is is earth as or red or it's yeah. red. Yeah, yeah, they call it red. Edom. Okay, hmm. Uh, so, but. I guess, I don't know. The the Gnostic stuff is, is interesting. Also, there's there's something in um, in in the canon canonical uh, Hebrew text. It's also like it says um, Yod Hey Vav Hey or Yahweh Elohim or the Elohim, you know. Said so that's that's that word is plural, right? Because mm -hmm. it's Eloah, mm -hmm. is is the, the 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 singular singular form of that, and Elohim is is plurality. So that mm. that in and of itself, and in, in even the Genesis account is saying like there a plurality of beings said let's create man, 
So it, and but the demiurge is is essentially what creates those things and the, the superstructure behind you know I, I would say that it's the space in which all those things can inhabit and and and, and sort of you know eventually build the material universe. Can I ask what is can you elaborate on the pleroma in relation to that? Yeah, I mean, you want to take this one, Jamie? I don't know a lot of Gnostic stuff. I know that that's like, isn't that, uh, it's not a necessarily a cosmological thing, right? Isn't it sort of a, uh, uh, like the totality of something, the pleroma? Yeah, it's essentially, so it's, it's in Gnostic verbiage, it gets kind of um, used to, to, to discuss where the eons exist and how Sophia it becomes a fallen eon. She descends from the Pleroma. So essentially, you, you have in the Platinian of Plotinus, you have his cosmogony and cosmology. When, when the intellect, the divine noose, begins to create, um, all of its creations are spiritual. None of them are physical. That's the Pleroma. Pleroma means fullness in Greek. It means like, yeah. like whole. And so it creates that. And then what happens is spiritual beings decide to mimic Right, you see that a lot in in even like hermetic literature and 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 like these mythic images of God looking into the face and seeing his you know into the water over the firmament exactly yeah, yeah. over well, the I've, waters I've darkness s- upon I've the face se- of the earth, face of the deep yeah I've seen and heard it uh, uh, described as as an egg like a pre cosmic egg. egg right like an Orphic egg yeah right uh-huh. the, then and that. That's the, the aroma. Cr- the cracking of that and and you know the yolk and everything making its way out of that is uh, Sophia sort of making her way. You want to make an omelet? You got to break a few eggs out of the uh, pleroma. Yeah, yeah. Now, when does what? What's the interchange or the sort of growth of uh, of Yaldabaoth and Yodhevavhe? Like there is some sort. Does one become the other? Are they two separate entities? Or? Well, that's important because it's pr- probably true, right, uh, Ike, that the, um, the, demiur- the idea of the Demiurge and Daimones are, this is pre-Christian. These are oh, yeah. ancient Greek ideas. Well, they, get, they really get fleshed out, at, like, um, I would say, what's the word I'm looking for? Contemporaneously? Like at the same time, yeah, yeah. It, it's contemporaneous with 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 Hellenized Judaism and early Christianities. Mm-hmm. So I I like Plato talks about he does not flesh it out to this degree. Right. You know, he's got he's focused on other things. So it isn't until the early Alexandria. early Christians, yeah. uh, you know, what maybe well, first couple centuries of the Common Era, where the Jewish diaspora in Alexandria, along with the Hermetists. Mm-hmm. And the Neoplatonists and the Gnostics, they were all kind of in that milieu. Yeah, so when, no, when it Gnostics, became... Gnostics aren't, believe it or not, Gnostics are, there is a tremendous amount of evidence to suggest that Gnostics are not exclusive to early Christianity. They're a mm. huge part of it, but really they're, so over the course of two massive conferences, a group of scholars, I think it's like international scholars, and it took like 20 years for them to confer on this, but they're, they kind of affirmatively said... It, it the evidence suggests almost beyond a doubt that um that there is a, a group of pre-Christian Platonic philosophers that refer to themselves as Nostikoi. 
Oh, really? Gnostics, yeah. Interesting. So um, let's circle back to something you asked about uh, Yahweh and uh, Yeheshua. Uh, yeah, the, uh, being the descended sheen. The, insert- so, the insertion of the shin. Yeah. Which, um, is kind of correspondent to the Christos, um, the Christ energy being descended down into mm-hmm. the Demiurge. Would that be the wrong way to describe it? Or into... Well, the Demiurge is conflated with Yahweh by, the, by some Gnostics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the almost, Old Testament God, almost by all, I would say by all, like, like so. So aside from because we don't, we have large groups of Gnostics. I'm sure there were just as many sects within Gnosticism as there were within Christianity sure. in general. Right. Never, but yeah, yeah. But I would say that almost unanimously, they <laughs> they they um, said that the 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 God of the Old Testament is is the is definitively the demiurge. Yeah. There's, isn't it? Isn't it more? Uh, like during Jakob Bema and Kircher and these sort of German theosophists of the um, early Renaissance, maybe, where you start to get the uh, descent of Sheen into the Tetragrammaton, and then you get this uh, Pentagrammaton. I don't know if that occurs any earlier than uh, Bema. That's not an antique idea. It, no, it's it's it actually the f- the first place that that occurs. I think in like inter- the actual uh, Pentagrammaton as indicative of Kircher sounds right. Reichland. Oh, like, really? The verbo oh, okay. mirifico, the yeah, wonder working word. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's, that's the first place. Uh, I I believe so. Here's the thing. I'm 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 not as familiar with with Burma's stuff. I would I would love to delve into that stuff more deeply. But in my research of like the Kabbalistic, it's definitely in Reichland. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, seen it there. Uh, yeah, and so but what it is is it's their their way of right because at that time you have the Prisca Theologia, the 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 ancient philosophy mm-hmm. or theology really going around Pico. Ficino, all those Kircher as well, mm-hmm. and and um, you start to see that being. It's in Agrippa as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, all those guys, he leaned on heavily. Yeah. Yeah, Roiklin particularly yeah. for his Kabbalah. Yeah, and Ficino as well. You know, the three books of Ficino, mm-hmm. but um, which I saw in hardcover today. At that, oh, at that really? At the book gallery? It blew my mind. It was the first book Oh, no I way. Yeah. I got to go over there. It's like, it's like <laughs> 65 someone, bucks. Though. Someone snags <laughs> that. Book gallery? Yeah. yeah. We were over there. Yeah, so, it was great. So what is, uh, what's the meaning here, right? If we're, uh, I mean, we can analyze where, where it happened in history, but there, what's, what is the, what are we talking about when we're talking about? There's one thing that sheen. I wanted to bring up. We're talking about very poorly constructed Hebrew. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like there was something you mentioned to me, uh, Ike, about this Christ event as even making the demiurge repent. That's that's in Basilidia, not. And I thought that that was interesting too. Yeah, and maybe that, so the thing is, like people get it twisted. Is the middle middle Platonists who started saying, like I told you last night, you know, they look around because Plato conceived of the demiurge as completely good because it was using the forms. Of the divine mind and and the uh, well of of the those were his working tools. So and really the, mm. the the good, capital G good. He was like saying, okay, these forms pre-exist the demiurge. The ideals pre-exist the demiurge, and that's what he takes and kind of uses as this like 
scaffolding, the structural material on which yeah. he hangs the skin of materiality. Mm. Um, but but the, the problem is that the skin of materiality is subject to death and de decay, and the bones are not. So imperf imperfection and perfection. And imperfection didn't have the same co connotation that it has to us. It All they meant was like, okay, philosophically, how do we determine reality? How do we determine perfection? And all it is just changeless and deathless. And what that means is eternal. Right. Because you have, if something's changeless, there can be no time. Right. Time is, a, is really a measurement of change. Yeah, and those are like our maker's mark that we're looking for. Exactly. Those like hints of eternality that, that uh, manifest themselves right. They're amongst universal. material. They're, they're called universals. And the, mm -hmm. I, the, the realm of former ideals was Plato's uh, response to that problem. Yeah. Well, wait, that's kind of interesting. If we think about, because uh, Hebrew, just like Greek, is uh, a numerical system, of course. Isopsophy. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, thereby are also uh, universals, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't the Hebrew alphabet be each sort of these uh, these universal or eternal sort of uh, puzzle pieces, or maybe not puzzle pieces because that, that implies they're, that they're, they could only take one's form, but... They're the, they're the Hebrew version of, of, I guess, like the building blocks of reality. They're right. Like an archetypal symbol of sorts. Like yeah. sacred algebra. Yeah. Right. And in, the, in that, you're approaching, you're, a, you're really approaching this idea of forms yeah yeah, yeah. so if, it's in the sefer yetzer yeah so with that in mind back to sheen so sheen specifically as a a mother letter as a mother fire. letter and and a and a part of that scheme that we just sort of talked about sheen specifically is in is um what are its significations it's a triple sheen. fire okay it's a triple fire it's now spiritual that, fire I understand it like that as well, but I've I know it from GD. Same. So, is what is it outside of that context? Well, I I have. I mean, in, in is terms it just of tooth? Strictly, well, yes. I would I would say if you if you're just talking about what is it, you know, each. Well, to back up, I, I'm pretty sure people who are familiar with this podcast are going to understand the ideas of the the, the, the associations with the Hebrew letters. Sure. Each one has not only a phonetic sound, a, a numerical value, and but it, they have an, id an idea. Yeah, yeah, a meaning. And yeah, so so tooth is the, the, the traditional, um, I guess, uh, Hebrew idea or meaning associated to it. Uh, but typically, even in, even, well, I think really in, in Christian Kabbalism, Shin really becomes that spiritual sure. fire. With the Germans. Yes. Yeah, German theosophy. Yeah. When you say triple fire, I don't really know what you're talking about. What, the letter you know? itself. Yeah. Yeah. But also the, the threefold fire, which they, they consider. So there's this idea that if we're going to... If if we're gonna talk about and it gets really hairy because you've got all these these kind of appropriated and mashed mashed up kind of uh, words like spirit, soul. Yeah, especially you know. by that time. Right. So, but the thing is, um, this idea of fire being the primary vehicle of of it's the most analogous to and contains it's 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 arguably the best container. In physicality, now we're talking about Renaissance ideas here, so we're we're constantly toggling, but um, uh, for spirit, 
which is r really to say the divine, the divine mm -hmm. mind is active through, through fire um, in the physical. That's, that's a later kind of idea. And that gets elaborated in Agrippa, right? He says, if you're going to do, if you're going to do any kind of ritual, you must have a candle. Fire has to preside over the entire operation. Mm. Well, we could segue into a lot of, I know you're, you kind of focus on alchemy, Sky. And at this point, there's a lot of, uh, you know, alchemical kind of, uh, meaning, you know, behind fire, behind salamanders, behind that set of paracelsian correspondences and, and all manner of alchem alchemical sort of... Yeah, but before we do, I wanted to see if we could keep dialing in on more of the meaning aspect of this dissension of okay. this Christ principle okay. and what that means for humanity or our souls or yeah. the whole grand scheme of things. Yeah, yeah. Since you're revving me up, I'm going to throw it back on you. Uh. <laughs> um, so yeah, you 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 guys being familiar with the GD, right? I mean, you'll you'll understand. You, you already know this stuff, but for anybody who's listening, essentially, you have at the gate at the gates of the Garden of Eden are placed the four cherubim, and they're essentially the living powers of uh, the four-lettered name, and that's what they represent. Um, in terms of this, again, mythic, you know, narrative. It's, we're not necessarily talking about anything literal here, but it's... Um, and that four-lettered name obviously corresponds to the Demiurge um, in, in, in this particular conception. But uh, to, to just note, to just preface, like you had... One of you guys had mentioned about the, the Demiurge re repenting when, when it realized that the Christ had come, not all Gnostic sects, in fact, very few of them comparatively, of the, of the large ones, believe the Demiurge to be willfully malevolent. Typically, it was just ignorant of what is beyond it. And so, therefore, it's a very fitting representation of our own personal egos. It's like, I think I'm doing this. And that, that's the thing in this mm. emanative cosmology, the Demiurge is so far away from the divine, so to speak, that it just thinks I am doing this, you know? Um, and so essentially within this particular thing, you have the four lettered name, which gives us the, the elements. So um, materiality, material reality, and then the descent of Shin is the, the, spirit. the spirit beyond that comes and literally rends the veil of materiality right in the middle clearing the middle path which is the path of ascent or the path of return directly between the two and that renders the name Yeshua mm -hmm. which is essentially the Basilidians also did not celebrate the incarnation of the Christ around the winter solstice they celebrated it in the spring around the time like within three days of when we typically believe the, the uh, Jesus going to be baptized by John the Baptist because it's that point when he humbles himself and said, like, right, if I'm the guy, I should be able to do it myself, right? No, but you have to do it. And he get, is baptized, and that's when the spirit descends into him as a dove. The sky's part, and, you know, God says, behold, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's from that point on that the Christ is here with us. Okay, so, like, bringing that down all the way... Uh to the personal narrative, that's like the epiphany. That's the that's moving away from the ignorant, the state of 
I'm doing is, this, and and now well, that's a, a realization th- that is, or a re- remembrance of what is actually, uh, in the literal sense of remembering. Uh, go ahead. Um, so, I think f- from what I've I've gathered about the subject, like talking about it mostly with you, Ike, is that I find fascinating is this idea primarily within like esoteric Christianity is that that's what's available to all of us. It's not exclusive to Jesus. And that's the message is that this connection with the divine that is depicted in this understanding is, is what is to be taught and, and given to everybody to recognize that that's what's available. It's not monopolized by... Is that accurate? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think so. I think I think the thing is that it was already taught, it was already given to everybody. That's and what the Gospels are. Maybe <laughs> that has something to do with the connection with your diamond and as a uh, sort of bridging that connection. I mean, what do you think about ideas like that, Jay? I'd be very, I've, I've kind of like been pretty long-winded about stuff like that, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on that stuff. Well, I mean, going back to just, like, you were just talking about the pentagram, and in, like, your typical pentagram ritual in, in the GD, right, there's, you make, ele- there are elemental points on the pentagram corresponding to um, the letters of the tetragrammaton as well, right? You have um, earth, air, water, and fire. And that, that top point on the pentagram uh, is usually depicted with the, um, the wheel of spirit, right? And the others are the cherubim, the, the signs of the, the fixed signs of the zodiac corresponding to each of those uh, elemental triplicities. And um, when the spirit comes down and sort of inhabits that, I think, if I understand what you're getting at, I think that's uh, that could be seen as this sort of Christ consciousness thing that descends into man, descends into matter, just as macrocosmically uh, the fire uh, comes down into the, the sublunary sphere of the elements, the spirit, you know, descends through Tiferet, let's say, into uh, Malkut, and just, you know, m- m- microcosmically, uh, that happens in man, because man is the little universe, so it would be a, a mirror of that, and that would be, uh, or, or, you know, a little hermetic kind of fractal of that, and that would be what's, what some people, I guess, call Christ consciousness. Now, I know that sounds fruity and new agey, I think, to say Christ consciousness, but I think it only sounds fruity from our perspective today. Right. But, but uh, that's not something that's, like, uh, uncommon in spirit, you know? Yeah. Sky, in asking that question well because especially because i said i'm going to throw it back at you and i just want to make sure that that happens yeah what do you because you're usually the uh interviewer and <laughs> right. i i'm i want to turn this back uh, inwards at you um do you think that there was like a moment like that for you like some sort of dissension of spirit for you i'm interested about your story because that 
um, well, you de- it's a you, pointed you, question. You it's like specific. Focus. You definitely focus on that stuff, which is which is great. But yeah, so I want to know why? about that yeah. moment. Moment or moments? Or moment? Yeah, that's a good. That's a a good throwback. But um, let me think about this for a second. If I'm thinking about if we're going to define it as are we opening oneself up to a higher power that we're allowing to act through and guide our soul trajectory if that is that kind of how we're speaking about it is is that what you're asking about those moments or sure yeah i mean what that's kind of how i'm thinking about it what what have you personally experienced where like you think that that is right because in order for us to be drawn to explore ideas i think there's like we're detecting an element of truth so what in your personal experience draws you to that idea so i would say the first attempt at something like that was in church where there was this and i was probably i don't know 12 or 13 or something along those lines. And they, they said, if you want to give yourself to Christ, come up to the front of the church and like, I don't know, do some prayer, do some prayer over you or something along those lines. And I was like, okay, this is, this is a, I believe in this, what I've heard confusingly though, I will say like a lot of all this was very confusing and, terms of how I was introduced to Christian concepts and through the church and the institutionalized nature of things. Um, well, it, can, but it can feel like it's like defi- defying rationality. Nonetheless, it was like, okay, this is a good thing to me. Like this is good. It represents higher, uh, it represents something that is good um yeah well, and bettering when you, when you subject it to all the theory and the rationalization and stuff like that of course it's going to be you know when we talk about this stuff historically theoretically and you know technically like that that's not the same as the the praxis of uh being ensouled or inspirited or or um inspired but then and then if I think about it more, too, I almost feel like there's always been that. And maybe it was because I uh, grew up within a religious context. So I always had this feeling that I did have a connection by default with the divine, I guess, or like God or a higher power. And but then, you know, just trying to do the right thing or do what I felt like was a you know good way to go there was that maybe that was your diamond but then ultimately it it came into the whole at least the institutionalized version of christianity that this was in questioning things that i didn't understand or the idea of being saved was very confusing for me or the idea of um Things where it was said, like, Jesus died for your sins, but then, 
or in accepting him into your heart and what does that mean? Like things along these lines were very confusing and seems like there was you no knew there denial. was like a deeper level to that. I didn't really claims. I, yeah, well, for sure. But um so then if I would have conversations or ask questions, the answers that I got weren't fulfilling to me and the people around me told me that the way I was thinking about things were not Christian kind of devalidating the connection that I felt like I already had in some ways. Mm. So that kind of really (laughs) drove me to try to unravel a lot of understandings about all different kinds of spiritual traditions and connections with God and what that means and the debates about it, different philosophies. Which is what you're still exactly in the middle of. And I think it's because I have, like, I have a really hard time with the uh, confusion aspects that seem to be, like, put on to, especially young children, just because of my own experience. And then almost like guilt tripping or gaslighting people into subscribing to your fundamentalism. And that's not to devalue or disrespect anybody else's connection that they have that may be true for them in the ways that they go about connecting with God or the divine. Mm -hmm. But it's the certainty that they say things with and or the um, attitude that they have and the way that they can that when I'm saying they not every, there's it's just groups individual groups of um, people that I'm speaking from my own experience that have kind of a, had a hurtful like um, like it, it upset like it hurt me to kind of devalue my own personal experiences and like things along these lines and saying like, well, if you don't do this, if you don't accept this, this way, then you're going to go to hell eternally and burn forever. And I'm like, well, I agree. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Like that doesn't, (laughs) well, that just didn't make that violated your intuition about it. It seems like that would violate probably any of our intuitions. Well, and to your point, it seems like it's a process which yeah. is like your your immediate response to my question was that, uh, you know, it wasn't one epiphanous moment. It's like these so that, that ongoing was just, that would, that was processes. That was the one first one I would say. I guess, yeah, that I mean I can, that's that's yeah. a, that's initiation. Yeah, it's just it happens in stages over and over and over until you yeah you, you, and you're just kind of going on this. You're, well, uh, you in life. I think you're either you're always moving on an arc. Right, because I don't think that you're ever really still in materiality. You're either moving, you're moving one direction or the other. Yeah, times time's going. And I don't know if you know this might not be up your guys' alley, but doing DMT, I mean, that to me was a divine experience. Like that was, I, one of the most significant moments of my life. Like I experienced gnosis of something that was transcendent and oh for sure something and like that. so i know that like for that if i was to express that to you know people in my family 
that would to them be viewed as they would maybe even view that as like demonic or evil or um demonic maybe yeah, <laughs> yeah there Good you point. go <laughs> interesting and so it's just this seeking to help what i what i'm attempting to do or be a part of is bridging gaps and facilitating deeper understandings that within these things like the occult for for your your average traditional christian even the word itself if they hear anything associated with it they have a negative view of it and want to just remove themselves from it they'll try to deter you from exploring the subject matters because of maybe what they've heard about it or things being demonized about uh you know just stuff like this and it just drives me crazy well that's what you and i were talking about like when when you were hanging out at my place this weekend i was kind of like of the like the occultism has gotten like typecast as satanism for so long it's like oh, it, it, sure. it needs like another role yeah <laughs> like it needs it needs to clean the palate you know yeah well you know what's interesting about a dmt experience is that there does seem to be a level of uh objectivity to it mm. like right. a lot of people who have these experiences report the same thing not similar things but Oftentimes the exact same things. Yeah. But what's also interesting about any sort of psychedelic experiences is that they, they tend to uh, highlight the virtues and vices that are unique to the individual. Absolutely. Right? In this, in this sort of abstract way where you're experience, experiencing them on, on their abstract terms, like not in your specific sort of individual moments where you you know the, a certain virtue or vice might have played out in some scenario in your life but it's like you have these psychedelic experiences and although many people who have had psychedelic experiences meet the same entities or see the same you know fractaline building or that sort of thing but at the same time there's a individuality to the experience in that the virtues and vices that we carry which are specific to each of our, you know, our natal souls charts. or our natal charts, right. to be literal, um, are sort of brought to the surface, and we get to experience them on this, again, this abstract, like, object, objective sort of plane. Um, so I think that's a great example of, of a moment where you have that sort of, uh, that spirit uh, or that, uh, yeah, that dissension of, of the spirit or maybe we're ascending to something, you know, right. Well, that's, that's the whole idea. Like Jamie was saying earlier, like Tifereth is kind of the, um, maybe a middle chamber, mm. uh, where, where we reach up and the up reaches down. And that's why there's this kind of bridal chamber thing happening in, in Tifereth. Right. And you said, receive Christ into your heart. Right. Um, and that's uh, to Jamie's point, like the whole rationalization and hyper intellectualizing of, of, of these ideas is not going to get it into your heart. It's almost like this dome over your heart where it's like, you know, you just, it's just being like sort of deflected. Mm. And I would, I would say like at the time, yeah, I, like receiving Christ into your heart, it's like, I think it's important to get to the 
ideas of what Christ represents. So it's like, what are you receiving into your heart? Because it seems like a lot of the times it's easy for people to say that you should accept Christ into your heart without describing what that means. Well, the thing is there, I think a lot of times that it's, I think personally, right. I mean, this is not a definitive statement, but for me personally, in my own, this is going on the record. Look, just don't come, don't come knocking on my door because I don't have shit for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I think, you know, you could say that um, the, the, the heart, maybe, if you want to put it poetically, is a place where we feel things. And people feel fear. They fear it, feel it uh, acutely. Um, and I think that the people who let, quote-unquote, Christ into your heart because of fear, I think uh, that's... I, I don't think that was the message mm. that Christ was, was trying to that's inculcate. That's a huge point. I, I, personally, to be 100% honest with you, I've studied Gnosticism, I've studied Reuchlin, I've studied all this kind of stuff. And to me, like the only thing that I need to keep coming back, and this is me, the only thing I need to keep going back to are the, are the Gospels, the four canonical Gospels. There's nothing in there that, that contradicts the message of Christ to me. Paul, the letters of Paul, sure, maybe, even though they're, they're some of my favorite Christian writings because he was just, he was, uh, he was like the flavor of flavor of Christianity. He was such an excellent hype man. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, and he had a very Gnostic bent to him. He really did. Uh, but And then you get all the thou shalt not and don't do this. That's Old Testament shit. That's why Christ always, he began what he said, you know, you have heard, you have heard it said, X, Y, and Z. But verily I say unto you. And then he goes on to contradict what he just said. And he said, you know, I come not to break but to fulfill the law. But the word in Greek is plerosai. And that means I make the law whole. Meaning you didn't have the whole law. Plero, like pleroma. Right. Wholeness. Yeah. Fullness. Plerosai means I fulfill, I, or I, I make whole. I make it whole. I he finish put it. the egg back together. He put Humpty Dumpty back together, <laughs> Good <point>. brother. <laughs> so I would like to ask if, it's, if you could describe the, like separate the, the body or the vessel or the, person or the name from Christ or Jesus, the energy or the consciousness of Christ itself, like what is that and what does it inculcate? It's this salvific principle, right? Um, The sacred heart and the redeemer, the restorer, the repairer, the paraclete, all the traditional names. But that implies so much. So that's like... Where do you even start? Because I think there's probably, again, tying it to the natal chart, there's an individual aspect to that sal- salvific principle because there are things specific to our, to our nature, to our, to our personal natures that we need, you know, virtues and vices that we carry that are unique to us in their own proportion that, w- that we need to sort of rectify to some degree. And there's a universal aspect to that salvific principle as well which ties both to a daimon in developing whatever that relationship is with that mediating sort of factor, but also in, in totality with maybe that, uh, that um, 
artisifer, that great artisifer principle, like that is more universal. But I, it's so hard to like get into the and weeds. Like, about. To me, so if somebody was like, "Do you accept restoration and rectification into your heart? Do you do you accept um, exaltation?" Like, who would it? Like to me, it's like absolutely. Like, of course. I think it's just the confusion yeah, of all of the context that point. surrounds these well, things. And then also You're like, an, yes, there's, there's, I there's, want that. <laughs> you know, I think, Please. I think deep inside, of that, and that's the point, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think in, inside a lot of people, there's an understanding that uh, we, I could be doing better. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have a question for Jamie, though. I think, I think you guys are, are familiar, at least, with the things that I have, have said about theurgy and stuff like that but i'm interested to hear if you find a a, a through line of of theurgy and perhaps like ritualistic maybe early or maybe not but christianity do you find there to be like a, a consonance between the two or any any um you know relation meaningful theurgy and christianity yeah yeah sure i guess there what do you mean historically i think that the, you Anything. could draw a line uh I don't know that story very well, but uh, you do get uh, a lot of Neoplatonic ideas showing up, well, via uh, Pseudo-Dionysus. I think that there's uh, one pretty plain introduction of Macrobius as well. So, uh, you know, and then Dante. You see it in Dante. He clearly has this stream of Scipio-like cosmology and uh, a lot of the same moves, a lot of the same motifs. Now, in terms of, like, uh, the ethos and character, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it just gets kind of hazy, right? It gets mm-hmm. kind of vague. But uh, Well, personally, though, because actually I think probably all four of us identify as a Christian, but maybe also all four of us have some theurgic practice that we partake in or involve ourselves with so for you on a personal note how do those two how do you reconcile the idea of having a theurgic aspect to your life and a Christian aspect or are they not two separate aspects well I I think I tend to compartmentalize those things although they're they're part of a of a bigger system, but you guys know that this is not the time, like, for me to be talking about that stuff. But uh, just because personally, I mean, if we're saying personally, I'm, like, in a weird place right now, mm-hmm. so it's, like, not, like, I'm not doing myself any favors talking about it. Or maybe that's exactly the sort of thing that, if you're if you're in the middle of a sort of, worldview an ontological crisis or something well, I, then. I have to say that you you know i i'm i'm privy to the stuff that you're going through to some degree or another i think you're handling it very courageously for sure and i think you're working through it and i think it sounds to me like you're doing a, a fucking great job at getting through it because if i had i mean if i had if i had similar issues i don't i don't know you know i don't know if, I, if i'd be able to still keep going so i respect you for it and you know yeah, it's a strange place to be. Yeah. You know, and it, I don't see it as a um a crisis of faith or anything, you know. It's uh it's more of a just philosophical thing. Yeah. 
but the but the sort of uh, the reverberations from that uh, can are quite like damaging to other structures, adjacent structures. Well, if it's your whole worldview, right? Then yeah. So the whole thing is like, you know, yeah, it's an unenviable place to be, mm. and uh, but it is something. I mean, I feel grateful, and maybe this is that you know, more of a faith-based component to it, I do feel like this is happening. So, uh, and, you know, it will culminate in a better arrangement in time. But this is just a really uh, strange place to be. Yeah. Yeah. From an astrological perspective, to, to get a little more practical... Uh, with this, especially for the listener who might be interested in <coughs> applying maybe some of what we're talking about. Uh, I think the astrological perspective is a good one to m- maybe start start with, uh, at least in terms of this conversation. So what is a what does astrology give an individual in this uh, quest for a better understanding of the self, their their relationship with the divine, like the schematic of character. Yeah. What? How do? How, where so, do we start? So, you have to know the the date and time and location of your birth. You have to know the exact time, and if you know all that stuff, you can get a you can get somebody to generate a uh, or erect a natal chart for you, or you can go online and do it. <clears throat> and if you have that, am I just talking to anybody? Who yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and then if you have that. You can call me up and for $180. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But no. Worth it. Um, no, you could uh, reverse engineer your descent into incarnation, where at every planetary sphere, depending on the condition and placement of that planet, you took on vices, virtues, etc., various qualities and characteristics that. When you look, when a skilled astrologer looks at a natal chart, they can sort of um, see the, they could sort of see this, uh, this uh, forming of a, of a personality, you know, Mm. and, uh, and you could kind of take that apart and do remediations, mitigations, you know, you could look at. Uh, transits and things and see how those are affected. I mean, it it gets very complicated. And even, uh, you know, um, Ptolemy said uh, it's a thankless, very difficult task. And he said it's super difficult, but he says, uh, you know, a skilled astrologer can do that. Yeah. Well, and thankfully we have pretty great tools to be able to handle that stuff nowadays where they had to do a lot more uh, manual labor, let's say, to, to erect that yeah, chart. I think, I, think there's, I think there's a there's a sense of holism of the chart that comes only through great industry and practice because to some degree there's got to be... I have, seen, I have seen people who have not <clears throat> been practicing astrology also for as long as others um, that have. Uh, and that's not to say that they had been practicing for a month or even a year perhaps less than somebody who had been doing it for two decades and out of out of um uh just this i guess intuition you know this or this in this intuitive uh ability 
can kind of um, really see as he as he's saying past just a schematic but seeing the forming of a person sure. i can't do that i've been studying astrology for like probably 11 years you mm -hmm. know like i can't do that yeah you gotta have a well the astrologer should have a really good into it and it takes someone who is fairly you know in terms of the native who is the person that is having their astrological let's say their chart the read or something the yeah chart. the subject of the chart uh it takes a a good native too, meaning someone who's who is uh, going to engage in a dialogue with the astrologer about their life, because I think that that's important when you're talking about. You know, it's like not mind reading. You need you need someone's biography and history to be able to really construct maybe a narrative that's viable enough to build on top of in terms of character de further character development or any of those sorts of things. This brings us right back to kind of where we started this conversation uh, as far as the daimon, right? Because yeah, that's when, what I was I saying, to ask next. when I was saying looking at the chart, you can see, uh, A, that schematic of character, but the person uh, begins to um, materialize as well. And I think that uh, what you're seeing is the map of that daimon daimonic journey, right? You're seeing the map of that descent through... Um, into the underworld through the planetary spheres. And if you see that in the map of the native, you know, in their chart, um, the there are ways to derive the name and planetary affiliation of your daimon from the chart. And you can, this is a very old kind of uh, really involved technique. Everybody in Hellenistic, Perso-Arabic, and even some... Uh, medieval Renaissance astrology, uh, they all had a, a method by which you, um, you can calculate mm -hmm. your daimon, right? <clears throat> and if you were to calculate for that entity, you could then theurgically, astrotheurgically, use that um, relationship, that daimonic intercessor, to, to guide you back as a psychopomp would, back into, um, you know, back through each of those spheres, beginning at the moon. In fact, if you go to, it's uh, the Poimandries uh, 125. Poimandries, I think it's 125, the first book of the Corpus Hermeticum, how we generally encounter them. There is a, a planetary ascent there where a... Um, a vice is given up at each of the spheres. It's yeah. clear as day. Yeah. And not only is it as clear as day, but it goes the moon. It doesn't say the moon, Mercury, Venus, but it gives you um, a characteristic or a signification that is clearly, any astrologer will tell you, is definitely has to do with those planets in their Chaldean order ascending so yeah and it's the, shedding it's cr it's very poetic yeah. you're like shed this and Those now on to the next garments. one it's you shed the, this um, what is up, up to us yeah yeah that's a cool piece to that's read fast. it's the coolest i love that passage because mm -hmm. it's such a clear anagogy right. anagogy mm -hmm. or anabasis as well right right so uh to begin sort of summarizing and wrapping up like sky yeah, go. No, well, it might be a long question. I just want to ask one question to Jamie about a confusion with astrology that I'm still trying to reconcile or figure out. 
um, within different systems. I know that because I talked to both you and Ike about this a little bit, but I still haven't wrapped my head around. Like, so determining your ascendant sign from, uh, like, if I'm looking at a Hellenistic approach versus. Are you saying whole sign? And, Sidere, yeah, right? Uh, so sun, Tropical would say your sun sign is. Yeah, I so mean, well, mean, either system. You mean tropical you have your sun Siberian. sign and your ascendant. Well, I've noticed, I'll just say I've noticed that if I'm looking at my chart on a tropical version, it would say that I have a different sun sign. Um, I think I would be Scorpio on sidereal calculations, but on... Yes, the biggies are like you're in one. You're looking at a Placidus house system, and the other you're looking at a whole sign. And this is a thing that. Well, he's saying he's saying. Um, so would that change my ascendant as well? And would that change like if you're determining the <laughs> daimonic thing, like you're speaking? Yeah, that would change all that stuff. So uh, basically, yeah, sidereal and um, tropical. First thing you got to realize is that signs are not constellations. Right. You know, and if if you don't view them as, that doesn't, you know, signs and constellations are two different things. So once you just forget about that connection, then things will make sense for you. And so, also, just to, in terms of the whole sign, to, to sort of uh, argue for whole sign, what we have of extant, ancient, Natal charts are like the vast majority of them are whole sign. Yeah, Hel Hellenistic astrology was was, uh, pr pr I think, almost unanimously. Yeah, whole everything sign we have is whole sign. Houses. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, I think you're, you know, because it's what it's what it's really easy to do is it's really easy to go on an astrological website, you know, calculate the natal chart for free. Yeah, and and there's all these different really esoteric uh, options. Yeah, and where so do you using, start? Using tropical uh, tropical um, uh, astrology, as he's saying, the signs are, are, are not the constellations. The signs are divisions of the ecliptic, or the, the apparent path of the sun in the sky. Whereas, like, the constellations that these things uh, were, were based on um, have moved, uh, yeah. right, over time. So, And also the thing is, you can't divide the, the ecliptic equally because the constellations, some of them are very small. Right? Yeah, they're like all Virgo, different like sizes. Tiny, mm -hmm. And like Taurus is enormous. Right. So they're all really, so, but the thing is, that's not what we're talking about. Some systems do that. Western uh, esotericism particularly or primarily operates on tropical. The only, the only variation I've seen there is that when you're, in, in some traditions, when you are doing a physical ritualistic operation, you have to find the mm -hmm. actual, uh, you can either, you can either divvy it up symbolically and find the area of the, um, sure. of the ecliptic, or you could find the actual constellation. Or if you're doing fixed star stuff. Right. So, or the planets too. You gotta, you have to right. have a clear line of sure. sight to the planet. Yeah. So I'd say that actually the best option, well, this is my opinion, the best option for for someone that doesn't have some nice software and doesn't want to pay for it is that you don't need to. You can go to AstroSeek has a traditional checkbox. You just hit traditional button and it'll pre-populate. 
all of all of the traditional settings oh, that will uh, so you don't have to do any of that digging you can literally just go to AstroSeq and hit and I think it was probably Chris Brennan that kind of put the pressure on AstroSeq and they were like all right so they they preset everything you can just go click traditional astrology now and put your birth info in like Jamie said and it'll spit out your traditional chart your your the chart that you would probably want to be looking at if you're going to try to do some uh, calculation that would you would arrive at your daimon with or something like that. For, right? for, be, so. for beginners, though, I I'm, I don't know if this is a fact, but I think the last time I went on there because I, I I do utilize I lean on them heavily yeah. for that stuff. Um, uh, I don't think that for beginners, if you're if you're looking for all the interpretations. You know uh, the delineation of that. I'm not sure that that's included because I know a lot no, of beginners. No, a lot of beginners not. of astrology are going to go to that just basic natal chart, and then they're going to just read what it says right, instead of right, trying right. to do it. It doesn't have that on the traditional. No, side you. Sh- I mean, ultimately, you, if you're uninformed about that sort of thing, what f- first thing you should do is take Jamie's class. Well, take Jamie's class or get a get a chart reading from Jamie. But if if you don't have the money to spend, it's you, Start comparing information, you know, or get a better job and take Jamie's class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So, well, gentlemen, this has been great. Do we have any other final comments on diamonds or demiurges or astrology? Or I don't, but I love Christ you guys. Consciousness? I'm very happy to be here with you guys. <laughs> yeah. I really am. This is incredible. This is a great moment for me. Thank you. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. This is I, a blast. I wish we could do it all the time. Yeah. I'm sorry I don't live here. Let's say hi to Pat as well. Hey, Pat, hey, Pat. Hey. do you have any uh, words of wisdom? Buy some socks. Buy, Tria Prima has brand new socks, and Pat oh, needs snap. you to buy those socks. Damn it. They're checkered. Wear them to lodge if you're a mason. Wear them to lodge if you're not a mason. Good luck getting in, but give it a shot. Um Again, this is the uh, Tria Prima podcast. You can find us at triaprima.co. Where can we find Ike Baker? I like to be in the park. Okay. No, uh, you can go to ikebaker.com, I-K-E-B-A-K-E-R.com. My uh, latest video stream there, my podcast, my blog is up there, and anything else you need to know shit. about me. Yeah, yeah, ton of good stuff. Where can we find Sky? The best. Um, you can find Sky at Philosophical Minds Podcast, uh, YouTube, Instagram, all of that stuff. Um, the RSS feed. Also, check out the Etherica Podcast. Oh, yeah. That you guys have a project together. A collab. We do. The Etherica. Which is really dope. We're on, I think, like 15th episode currently. Yeah, hours. I mean, like, hours of rolling content there. All right, we'll check that out. And then jamiepaullam.com, presumably, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I don't have my own website. I'm triaprima.co. Get one. Come back to triaprima.co. <laughs> um, thanks for listening. Uh, we appreciate, appreciate you for making the trek out here from North Carolina. Appreciate you uh, making the trek from the East Valley. All the way from This Mesa. was a blast, and hopefully we can do it again soon. Pat, you look great over there. All right. Bye, everyone. Love you all. Farewell.